This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Biological Sciences uh, is uh, rather different uh, in terms of its representation of females and minorities than many of the other STEM fields. So I'm going to start by, uh, by giving you some of the demography uh, of what we experience here at UCI and, uh, and within uh, the rest of the University of California, uh, just examining what the pipeline looks like in the biological sciences. So, for instance, in uh, the uh, undergraduate student enrollments, total enrollment uh, in uh, 2011, BioSci was 58% women, 16% uh, URMs, uh, and at graduation was 56% women uh, and 19% URMs. Uh, the current uh, the, for the class, which has just entered this fall, uh, we're uh, at 66% women. Uh, and 26% uh, uh, underrepresented minorities. So there's, uh, there is a much more uh, robust diversity uh, in both gender and in uh, underrepresented uh, minorities uh, within uh, BioSci than in many of the other STEM fields. These numbers are a bit high on the female side in comparison with other campuses, but, uh, but uh, definitely within the ballpark. Uh, within our graduate programs in uh, 2010, uh, we were 55% women, 19% URMs, uh, and uh, at graduation that year, uh, with 35 PhDs, it was 60% women uh, and 14% URM. These, um, the values for women are um, uh, higher than the national average for that year, which was about 54%. Uh, in uh, the uh, within the UC system uh, for uh, for a professorial line faculty, uh, the numbers are 26% women, 6% URMs, uh, and uh, in our School of Biological Sciences, uh, that for uh, when this was put together, it was 22% women uh, and 8% URMs. Uh, we have been holding rather constant at about 25% women for the uh, for the past decade. Um, and what, so that we're, the field and here, we're, we're doing something right in terms of having high minority representation and, uh, and high female participation as well. And what we want to talk about uh, today is um, the, uh, uh, for mechanisms that we have found successful within the School of Biological Sciences for both maintaining and hopefully increasing these, uh, uh, these numbers. Uh, so um, 
we're going to be talking, we're going to have three, speak, uh, three people talking uh, today, uh, and uh, I, will introduce, I will introduce the next one, and he will introduce the following one. Uh, for, uh, we're going to be talking about building this, uh, uh, this um, diverse future for URMs. Uh, within biological sciences, helping with the transition from, for high school STEM students into successful undergraduate STEM students, uh, and then I'll be coming back at the end talking about improving uh, K-12 science uh, education and our programs to do that. So the next speaker is going to be Luis Motobravo, uh, who is our Director of uh, Outreach and Minority Science Programs within the School of Biological Sciences. Luis. Thank you, Al. So uh, in this presentation, I will be talking uh, uh, what happened with the pipeline that is between uh, the K-12 and the PhD degree. So I have divided uh, this talk in two major parts. The first part, I'm going to be talking about the educational opportunities, particularly females in the K-12 to PhD uh, pipeline, uh, with particular uh, emphasis on the underrepresentation in biological sciences. And the second part of the talk, I'm going to be talking about successful interventions we have been developing here in the School of Biological Sciences, uh, called the Minority Science Programs for undergraduates as well as for graduate students. A female that was born last year, the income of their parents is going to be very different depending on the ethnicity of uh, uh, the household. So we can see here, uh, just to, to contrast the extremes, that uh, a black African-American family will receive an expected uh, median income that is going to be less than half of that of an Asian-American uh, family. And we will expect then that many uh, uh, aspects are going to be correlated with this uh, income. So uh, I want to make a, a distinction here between groups that we have been talking about. The first one is uh, we uh, talk about these groups, including Native Americans, as a minority. And the reason is because uh, the majority of the people in the, U in the United States uh, check the box, the box white in the U.S. Census. And I want to contrast with uh, the other term that is used, which is underrepresented, uh, that include only uh, black, African-American, uh, Hispanic, as well as Native Americans. Those are groups that are underrepresented in higher education. Now, what happened with the relationship that exists uh, in terms of gender and ethnicity in this par part of the pipeline? I'm, here I'm putting the 10 graders and the possibility that they're going to be admitted to the University of California system. So if we contrast, for example, uh, only 13% of the 10 graders are going to attain admission uh, to University of California. That is for females. And for males, it's actually lower. It's only 10%. Now contrast that with the difference that exists across ethnicities. As you can see, the most likely 10th uh, uh, grader that is going to enter the University of California system is going to be a female Asian, and the less likely to enter the University of California system is going to be an African-American male, only 4% of them, as well as an Afri an, an Hispanic uh, male. So as we can see here, are two emerging uh, patterns here. The first one is that uh, there's a major contrast across ethnicities, and that's something that is going to be sustained across uh, the, the pipeline. And the other aspect that we will see in the biological sciences is that always uh, women are going to be higher represented, as, uh, as uh, Albinet uh, mentioned, in, in the uh, biological sciences uh, pipeline. 
So um, going back to what, what is the phenomenon that is causing these major differences across ethnic groups, I just went and looked into uh, Orange County high schools. Uh, these are the, the, the county, the local uh, county, uh, that reflects uh, very much what happens at the level of the state, but also at the level of the nation. So here in, in this horizontal axis, I have the percentage of underrepresented that are graduating in each of the high schools. And here in the vertical axis, I, I uh, place the percentage of the graduating high school who becomes UC eligible. Now, if somebody attends and a school, the uh, possibility of attending the University of California should be independent, right, of the ethnicity of the, uh, the, the students that are in that school. But if we look at the data, actually this is what happens. So we have the high schools, for example, this high school is Santana, just a couple of miles from here, uh, where there's a high population of, of Hispanic Americans, and uh, only 5% of the graduating class attain UC eligibility. Now contrast that with a school that is, for example, here, uh, University High, which is only a couple of blocks from this university. And so that school, almost half of their graduating high school class attain admission uh, to the university. And so uh, what happens when you have students uh, attending the University of California that come from uh, these schools and uh, they start to compete for the same grades in uh, the, the freshman year? Uh, the next speaker is going to be talking exactly about, about uh, what happens when we have a highly heterogeneous incoming class of uh, biological sciences majors and they start to compete for the same grades uh, the, the, the freshman year. And the other aspect that uh, we should also keep in mind is that uh, we would expect that talent will be equally distributed independently of the ethnic composition. And so the students that might be coming from uh, these uh, high schools, they, they are going to be topping their class. They did the best that they could possibly do, given the environment that, they, that was given to them. So some of these students are straight A's, and yet, as you can see, the level of attainment that these students are going to attain is way lower than that the students might be coming from other uh, high schools. So what happened with, uh, with the students? Uh, <clears throat> so in terms of the, the, the uh, factors that we have been discussing uh, here in the, the previous talk about what, what makes uh, these uh, major differences. Well, one of the most important ones may be the academic preparation. The academic preparation of the teachers that they are providing uh, this uh, education, but also the preparation of the parents. Uh, they often uh, haven't attended uh, college, in the case of underrepresented minorities. And just in general, educational resources, the expectations that exist about what these students are going to be accomplishing, the lack of role models in STEM, the understanding of the importance of higher education, as well as the knowledge about opportunities available for those who, who pursue careers uh, in science. Now, uh, if we look at what happened in, the, in this pipeline, and how is the representation with regard to uh, the general uh, population in California, we see the, the, the following gaps. Again, I'm just contrasting the extremes uh, that, that happened here. So 50% of the baccalaureate degrees given by the University of California in life sciences go to uh, Asian Americans. But they represent only 15% of the population in the state who is older than 18 years. Contrast that, for example, uh, with only about 10% uh, of the uh, degrees in life sciences that are given to Hispanics when they make approximately 33% of the California population. So we can see that there is a major uh, disparity in regarding to uh, degrees and, and accomplishment uh, across 
the different ethnic groups. Now, this is a problem that has been uh, uh, discussed nationally and particularly in the Insti National Institutes of uh, Health. And the reason is because there is a low representation of Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, and African Americans as a principal investigators of NIH grants. So these are actually data taken from, from NIH. So NIH uh, considers that, that these majors are the ones likely to pursue biomedical research. And so what they have done here is to compare how does the number of uh, uh, baccalaureate degrees in these areas compared to the PhD, and in other words, if somebody uh, ob uh, obtains a baccalaureate in one of these areas, what is the likelihood that he's gonna pursue a PhD? And so here are the numbers. In the case of, of the whites, about 8% of them will pursue a PhD, in contrast with 18% of the Asian Americans, 3% only for uh, blacks, uh, six for Hispanic, and uh, five for American Indian. So last year, uh, NIH released uh, finally, after uh, many years of, of waiting for this data, the data that was uh, cited previously on the uh, ethnicity of the uh, principal investigators of the grants. And these are, these are, this is a summary of the data. So we can see 72% uh, of the uh, R01 grants, those are the main uh, grants for senior faculty, were give, given to white, and uh, white are 63% of the population. So in the case of the Asians, they received 14% of the grants, but they are only 4.8% of the U.S. population. In the case of the blacks, that was uh, uh, still you know, in, in discussion and coming out in papers. Uh, less than 1% of the black applicants actually, uh, uh, sorry, less, less than 1% of the awards given were to uh, principal investigators that were black when they are 12% uh, of the population, Hispanic uh, three when they are 16% of the population, 0.05% to Native Americans when they are 0.9% uh, of the uh, US population. Now, in a letter that uh, Francis Collins, the uh, director of the NIH, uh, published in, in Science, he acknowledged that we are missing a critical contribution uh, to our talent pool. And that's exactly what uh, we are having, uh, doing in the minority science programs during the past decades. So in the next part of this presentation, I'll be talking about interventions we have been developing. So the objectives of our programs is to increase the number and more important, the academic excellence of underrepresented minorities that are pursuing biomedical research careers and leadership, leadership positions in biomedical sciences. So in 2005, the programs received the institutional award that is called the Presidential Award for Excellence in Science, Mathematics, and Engineering Mentoring that was given by the White House. And so the strategy that we have pursued is uh, very strongly on mentoring, high expectations, and a culture of, of accomplishments. We have developed a comprehensive effort, a pipeline from K-12 to graduate studies, as well as uh, we have identified supportive faculty and promising college uh, students, and foster, fostering an interest in basic research through structural research experiences. We also partner with uh, other universities and community colleges. So uh, this is the, 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 how do we conceptualize the pipeline. Some of the students are gonna come uh, through community college, some of other uh, come to freshmen. So we have a program for every stage of the pipeline, one for the uh, bridges to baccalaureate that target specifically community college students. Then we have our largest grant, which is the MBRS. Uh, we target all the way from freshmen to graduate students. We also have an international training program where we send the students during the summer abroad to uh, conduct research as well as the MARC program that targets juniors and seniors to pursue uh, PhDs in biomedical sciences. Uh, 
So the activities that these programs have um, uh, is offering training in the uh, use of scientific literature, experimental designs, procedures in analyzing and interpreting data, preparation of scientific communications. We have a laboratory dedicated uh, to train freshmen and sophomores and providing the first research experience. Uh, and then uh, these students are placed in, in the laboratory of faculty. We provide also academic advising as well as study groups. Very important, we have at the end of the summer uh, a symposium where the students uh, prepare the talks that they are going to be giving to national conferences. I should mention that our students have been highly successful in obtaining uh, awards at the uh, uh, national um, scientific uh, conferences, uh, such as the AAAS, as well as the graduate school, uh, graduate school application guidance, as well as recommendations uh, for uh, educational opportunities. Our uh, MSP activities for graduate students include a uh, conference that we organize for prospective applicants, as well as a summer program for incoming graduate students. During the academic year, uh, we have study groups, academic advising, as well as professional uh, development uh, panels uh, for graduate students to uh, pursue postdoctoral uh, positions. So the number of MSP undergraduates that are pursuing uh, PhD degrees in biomedical sciences have increased dramatically, particularly after two, 2006. And as you can see, uh, the number of females that are uh, pursuing PhD is always larger than the number of males. And this is uh, according to, to the uh, trends that we see in, in biological sciences. I think more in, most importantly, we have over 120 former MSP undergraduates that are pursuing PhD degrees at the top universities, and we expect these students then uh, to continue at uh, postdoctoral positions and eventually get into faculty positions at uh, research institutions. In terms of uh, graduate students, uh, in the past, if we go before the 2000, the number of uh, um, PhDs awarded to underrepresented minorities in biomedical sciences, that's in the School of Biological Sciences as well as Medicine, was in the order of one or two. And then uh, beginning with 2000, we started a very aggressive uh, way of uh, recruiting as well as retaining and graduating the students. And we see the results about five to six years later where uh, we are now uh, have increased about three times uh, the number of uh, PhD awards to underrepresented minorities. So uh, something that is important to uh, emphasize is our mentoring philosophy. We believe that uh, this mentoring should be uh, conducted by individuals but also by the institution and to encourage and prepare students to advance towards productive careers and becoming leaders in biomedical sciences. By encouraging women, providing confidence, support, economic, as well as motivational, personal growth. And the preparation includes um, analytical thinking skills, uh, scientific inquiry, critical reasoning, quantitative reasoning, uh, data collection using instrumentation, as well as statistical analysis, and oral and writing uh, proficiency. Now, this is my last slide. I just want to uh, summarize what uh, we should be doing in order to increase uh, the uh, underrepresented minorities in the uh, STEM uh, pipeline. And one of the issues uh, to address the disparities that exist uh, in the K-12 is to uh, develop uh, programs for incoming freshmen that fill that gap that we see in uh, schools that have higher representation of underrepresented students they, that they, they haven't been uh, prepared as well as the other students. But also develop a set of measurable goals and indicators of success along the, the pipeline. Uh, award, of course, uh, uh, state-funded proposals to increase underrepresented groups in STEM that generate synergy with the current federal initiatives that, that we have. 
as well as develop a UC database to track the careers of students. Uh, as, as we uh, have been discussing, uh, we need information about what happened with the students, and also disseminate data and the best practices. And uh, just to a uh, final thought is that uh, uh, through our programs, uh, we have uh, clearly demonstrated that there is an enormous amount of talent that exists in the state, and it's just a matter of uh, providing the right uh, educational support to these students uh, to flourish and uh, to reach academic excellence. Uh, the next speaker is going to be uh, Diana Dowd, who is uh, the chair and professor of the Department of Developmental uh, uh, Cell and Developmental Biology. All right, we'll get, right, get started. The goal of the program that I'm going to be talking about today and that I've been working with for about the past eight years is to help successful high school STEM students become successful UCI STEM students. And so the challenge is that in our introductory courses at UCI, as at many other research institutions, we have very large introductory classes. So greater than 400 students per section um, in our introductory biology class. Uh, we have 2,300 students this fall that we are teaching in six sections of introductory biology, and I just came from teaching 900 of them, one from set from 12 to 1 and one from 1 to 2. And these students, as Louise said, are incredibly diverse, both in terms of their ethnicity, their socioeconomic background, their academic preparation, and their learning style, which is very important. And so we've been trying to develop strategies to improve student learning in these large introductory biology classes. And these are primarily based on increasing engagement of the students in the classroom and increasing their, um, their uh, motivation by making them feel part of their academic learning experience rather than passive passive, passively uh, absorbing what we're saying is to actually be actively participating. So one of the major strategies we've done is we tried to or oops, organize our class periods into three to four segments rather than 50 minutes that I stand up there and talk the whole time, where we have mini lectures to introduce new material, and then we have active learning exercises to engage students and promote dialogue in the classroom, even though there are 400 students and they're sitting in lecture-style seating. So we use clicker questions, that is electronic response devices where the students are uh, asked a relatively, you know, multiple choice questions. They discuss, they click in by themselves or discuss with each other what is going to, what their answer is, and then they click in. We discuss this uh, among then as a group. We also do small group discussions that are for more open-ended questions. There isn't an A, B, C, or D answer. And they write their responses down, and we then talk about these. And finally, we do garage demos. That's my sort of specialty, which is I use large physical objects to illustrate complex microscopic biological processes. And the students get invited from the lecture hall down into my space. And it makes them much more likely to invite me from my space up into there. So it's to create us a way to interact with students. So all right, so the resu result is we have increased time for problem solving in a mentored setting. And we have an increase in student faculty interaction and satisfaction, but the challenge is really to create more time for active learning without losing content. 
And so there are strategies out there that people have been using for quite a long time and quite effectively, like just-in-time teaching that was developed by a number of physics professors, where you use pre-class assignments to prompt thinking about um, an upcoming lecture. The student submissions then are reviewed by the instructor prior to the lecture, and then right before the lecture, you adjust this to a, you know, get your learning goals so you're really focusing on what they don't know. That's great, but it really requires a huge amount of effort and preparation. So it, uh, we have developed something that's a little bit different. So we tried pre-class readings, give the students an assignment, and then we give them a quiz. So we know if they read the assignment and they have to take it and it, make it worth points. And 90% of the students will take it if you make the quizzes worth 0.1% of their total grade, at least for freshmen. Um, <laughs> But we saw no change in exam performance when we did this. So why don't reading assignments help students master knowledge level material before lecture? And so here are your three choices. And this is based on what the, my answer is based on what the student said. Um, A, they don't have time to do the reading. B, the textbook is too difficult to read. C, they don't know what to focus on. So anybody who thinks A, raise your hand. Couple people. B, raise your hands high. C. Okay. Um, actually, you guys are right. Most people don't guess it. They don't know what to focus on. No, they have plenty of time to do the reading. In fact, they read that same chapter 12 times, Dr. O'Dowd. I read that so many times. And I say, but that's not what, if you read it once and you didn't get it, then we need to move on to other strategies. So to address this, we developed a very simple strategy, our learn before lecture, where we have pre-class exposure, to reading using a worksheet to guide their learning. We took four slides out of each lecture at the beginning of the lecture, and the worksheet was developed to help them gather the same material from the textbook that I gathered. Then they have a pre-class online quiz, and the assignments are submitted, but we don't get any, it's all online, we don't give them feedback, and there's no revision before the lecture, because I'm just too frantic to do that. Okay, in the lecture then, we have time for active learning exercises that were replaced by this ten, these four slides that got reduced, and we do in-class problem solving. It can be implemented incrementally. The first year we did it, we only had three of these, and the uh, second year we did four. This year we're doing five. And we're doing five. We increased them because we got very positive and significant results of increase in learning outcomes. And that is um, looking here, we're looking at the percent correct on six different topics, actually five different topics here in the year that we did the um, LBL versus the year that we didn't. And we specifically picked ones that were difficult questions and difficult concepts that we weren't being effective in the classroom. So the students like this, they say, in fact, these LBLs really helped me and our subsequent follow-up shows they're more likely to do reading before their following classes. Um, uh, subsequent classes in the curriculum than the students who didn't participate in this. But some students still struggle to learn the material. So we wanted to know, could we identify performance predictors? And we looked at a number of different uh, parameters and we looked at um, math and AP biology scores showing a strong correlation with performance. So here's the letter grade in our class. Here's math SAT scores, and you can see there's a very strong correlation, highest SAT scores, highest letter grades, and we don't have any math in our class, but we have a whole lot of logic and critical thinking that's necessary. 
Even more disturbing is the fact that here is the cluster of our non-URMs over the seven-year period, and these are our URMs. And this uh, was the data from last year, 2011. We had the lowest math SAT scores, and we had a 25, over 25% failure rate of those individuals. Who were they? Looking specifically at this graph here, this is a percent failure rate as a function of uh, uh, time or uh, year in the class, year, class year. And you can see the female URMs are, this is the, the gray line is the average. Female URMs are faring worse than any of our other students. So this is a real problem. I haven't fixed this. We've used lots of different strategies, some that are very effective for our class as a whole, some that are not effective in learning gains, but they're okay, that, but that the students like them, so we keep them. But um, what I really want to know is, what interventions have you guys used at your institutions that have increased the success of URM students in introductory STEM courses? So I'm going to tell you in just two seconds what things we're doing, and then I want to hear from you because um, my feeling about coming and giving a talk like this is I want to learn something from that, and I want to know what other people are doing because we need help. Okay, we're trying a small flipped class right now with a high scaffold feedback and class... Um, to see if there's an increase in the performance of URM or non-URM students. The experiment is we have three lar uh, two large classes that I teach, and then my co-worker is teaching a small flip class using um, online resources for the uh, uh, early knowledge level exposure, and all the class period is spent on problem solving, and we're comparing the performance on identical exams that we're writing together, and we're following progression through later classes. And we are making a massive online open course for pre-Bio 93 that's um, uh, planned for Coursera for this summer to see if we can see an increase of URM students, that uh, non-URM students. And we're going to be looking at ones who elect to take this versus the ones that elect not to take it and track the performance in the class. And so that's the end of my presentation. And I really want to thank my Bio 93 team. Um, uh, Dr. Williams, who's my co-director, and of course my Bio 93 students, who are this diverse, amazing group of students. I, I teach a large class two introductory cell and molecular biology to our, the first class at our Bio Major C. And I teach it with a, an, a colleague, and for many years now, it's maybe the 17th year, and in the beginning, uh, well, we failed quite a number of students, but it was around 30%, something like that. And we grade on a straight line. Around five or six years ago, we began to fail 40%, 42%. And we, I was totally alarmed and didn't want to teach a class in which I, I, I did that. So we sat down and put our brains to work with some people from Utah. And they helped us a little bit about approaches to teach large classes. So we came back home and uh, put together a program that is actually similar to yours, but a little bit different. So we have a class between 300 or 500, depending. And we have, so we have two classes of those. And my colleague and I teach one, and another colleague and another, another two colleagues teach another one at the same quarter, same time. 
And so what we begin to do is implement these things we developed. We developed clickers in class as a, t a problem solving. So as you did with yours, we, they, they, they converse. We put the problem up there. So we, we explain a, a, com uh, a concept, and then we test them if they understood the concept by putting a clicker problem and letting them discuss amongst themselves. Then they answer. If we see that you know 85% of the class responded correctly, we just move on, and they can learn from the TAs, those who could not answer. If, on the other hand, you see a split, then you have to go back and repeat the concept, or repeat the explanation. So clickers is one, quizzes is another. Homework every single time we, we lecture is another one. Of course, all of these are on the web. Um, we also uh, have discussion sections, and when we instituted them, the the dean didn't want to give us the money for all those TAs, so we taught them themselves and uh, ourselves until we prove that it works. And in those discussion sections, it's entirely problem solving. And then we have another thing that we take a resource out of UCLA, and this is a written exercise in which the, the students actually, we formulate a problem, and they have to write an essay on that problem, trying to answer a certain number of questions, and then they um, it, it's actually a very interesting exercise that's probably worthwhile doing because the students really liked it. So they write this paragraph and they submit it. They then get three paragraphs back from us, one that's excellent, one that's good, and one that's poor. And then they learn that and they won't pass to the next step until they learn that one is good, bad, or, or, so, or worse. So are the female URMs yes. doing well, well in that most of our most of our class is underrepresented minorities because there's so many of them. And we have done some statistics to show that they, our class graduates faster than the other class, but we have not yet disaggregated the, the, the statistics, and that's one idea you just gave me. Because okay, we yeah. hadn't thought about that. Right, because our, overall our students are doing better, but there were, there's a group that's significantly being left behind, and I don't know if it's because maybe all these extra resources we give them, maybe they are less able to access those resources, that's, that's, and they need more structure. That's so. interesting, a good, uh, interestingly a good question, because we also give more office hours, and we have a tendency to see more um, women uh, black women and represented minorities that come to our classes, to our office hours. But we will disaggregate the, the data. Okay. We are looking at, um, at the problem of how do we begin this pipeline uh, initially? How do we get interested, students interested in science? You've all seen the headlines. Uh, they're, uh, uh, California schools are failing in science. Many science classes are being, uh, being canceled. Uh, tech preparation is lagging within U.S. schools where the United States is being, uh, is being passed in the production of, uh, of scientists. And this is, <clears throat> this is a graph of the number of STEM degrees as a percentage of total tertiary degrees, that is, of uh, undergraduate degrees, uh, in uh, a variety of different nations. Uh, China is there second at 40% of the people uh, doing undergraduate degrees or enrolled in STEM programs, uh, down to uh, the United States, uh, right behind Brazil, 
with about 12% of the students going into, uh, into STEM. This is recognized as being a problem for the future economy uh, of uh, our country uh, and uh, to, uh, as a threat to scientific innovation uh, and maintaining a leadership role within the world. Uh, less than a decade ago, a, a nationwide uh, conference was convened called Rising Above the Gathering Storm uh, that dealt specifically with this issue and with the need to train uh, more scientists. But where do you get the interest in science to begin with? It has to be generated within the K-12 uh, time of the students. They're not going to go through that and then look at college applications and suddenly say, oh, maybe I want to be a scientist. And when I talk with my faculty, you know, every one of them has the story about this particular teacher was instrumental to, for me in getting me interested in science and giving me hope that I could myself become a scientist. Uh, mine was Mr. Howe in the eighth grade, and God bless him. Uh, this is a multifaceted problem, but there is certainly one thing that we know is an important influence on the lack of uh, the production of scientists within this country, and that is the lack of science courses being canceled, uh, you know, particularly in California, but all over the United States, and a lack of prepared science teachers. Special credentialing in, uh, in K-12 means that a, uh, that a, a teacher is teaching in a subject for which they have had no particular training. And in eighth grade algebra, 40% of the teachers do not have a math credential and are teaching outside their field of training. In high school physics, only 30% of the teachers that are involved uh, in, in teaching physics were actually physics majors or even physics minors. I don't know how you can, and I'm not saying that those teachers are not competent, but I am saying that they're probably not inspiring. They may be able to get what it is that needs to be taught out of the book, but they didn't love it. They have no particular depth in it. So when the student comes up and says, well, this is really interesting. I didn't understand it. Well, maybe they can explain it, but they can't say, oh, and if you, you know, now that you know that, this is something really cool that I want to tell you about. And they, they can't convey that excitement. So how is, how is UCI attempting to meet this challenge of increasing the number of science literate, science educated teachers within our K-12 system. Our program is called CalTeach. There is a CalTeach program at all of the undergraduate campuses of the University of California. Ours is a bit different. Uh, we're doing something unique and we think that it's very highly successful and I want to tell you about it. This is an interdisciplinary program here at, uh, at UCI. Now, you know, I've been a dean a long time, been a chair for longer before that. Getting different units to work together uh, in the university, uh, you know, it's, it's 
pulling teeth doesn't, uh, doesn't compare to it. Uh, but this is what, what I think is, is key is really, for us, starting at the top, that is with the deans of the schools of biological sciences, education, physical sciences, and saying this is an important thing for us to do, for our schools to participate in, for our faculty to participate in, and we need to work together in order to make that uh, a reality. So for us on this campus, CalTeach is a program that takes STEM, uh, STEM uh, under oriented undergraduates, and at the end of the program, they end up with a Bachelor of Science degree in one of the traditional STEM fields. And at the same time, they take education courses that are sufficient to give them a California State teaching credential all at the end of four years. It's an integrated program where they, rather than doing a, uh, a separate fifth-year credential, they get all of the stuff that they need while they're here in this program. Now, I don't expect you to read this, but this is for a sample CalTeach program within the School of Biological Sciences, freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years. And the courses in biology are figured in green. The courses in education are figured in magenta. And you can see that that program Beginning in the freshman year, students will have both a science course, in this case biology, and an education course. They may walk from one into the other, and all through all four years. For the education component in the freshman year, they are out as freshmen working in K-6 to schools, and then middle schools, their sophomore year, junior year within high schools, doing progressively more of the teaching and doing full-on uh, teaching a class uh, their senior year, getting them totally prepared for a teaching credential. And certainly the time compression of this is important because it, you know, it, I, I think that it, uh, not having an additional year of about a $25,000 equivalent of a master's degree uh, in credentialing is, uh, is a valuable financial incentive for the program. But I think an even more important one is this going back and forth between science classes and education classes. You walk out of Diane's uh, freshman uh, uh, biology course and you walk into an education class and you're thinking, I don't see how you can keep from thinking, how, would I teach, how am I going to teach that? How would I teach that in high school? And I think that you've got a very different student coming out of this kind of program than if you have the traditional program of science, 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 education. Let's, you know, let's now think about education. We want it integrated. So there are, there are a variety of different uh, advantages that we see to this, um, uh, to this program. I mean, just some of them, the, the CalTeach students identify with each other. We have a special place for them to study. Uh, they're kind of a special interactive cohort uh, among uh, our STEM majors. Um, the, the classroom experience, the, the exposure to the research environment of the University of California. 
but we tried something new uh, recent, uh, just, uh, and it's just come in this year. What we were doing with this program previously was taking people that had applied here in STEM fields and wanted to be a scientist, and then after they came here, trying to convince them to all to consider going into teaching as a, uh, as a uh, career choice. And so it's kind of a conversion had to be involved. And we said, well, what if we tried to recruit people that wanted this in the first place? So we created a new major, a blended major between biology and education so that the students could apply to this when they were applying to the University of California when they were looking at UC Irvine as an option. And we thought, well, you know, will this work? We don't really know. You know, maybe we'll get, maybe we'll get 50, maybe even 70 applicants for, uh, uh, for this program. We got 750 applicants. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was really amazing, and the, what was even more amazing was f that we looked then at these, at these applicants and said, well, what are their alternate majors? Are these just more bio majors coming in under another label? Two-thirds of the people that applied to the biology education major did not preference biology as their uh, as their alternate major. They were all over campus. Some were in social sciences, some were in humanities, some were in engineering, etc. Our admissions people told us, you have identified a new population of students. You have identified people that are interested in science and want to teach science, but they don't want to be scientists. They don't want to go through that kind of slog. So, we admitted 200 of them. We now have, you know, this is the third week, and we have 70 of those uh, bio-ed majors on campus. And I've got to think that, well, we're going to study their performance and see how they, uh, how they do through our, our entire program. But we're very excited to have this as a sort of a new route of entering in to answering the overall problem about how do we get, how do we get better teaching, better science teaching done within the, um, uh, within our uh, K-12 program. Thank you very much. Uh, we're all going to, we're all going to come up here and uh, answer your questions in the remaining whatever time we've got. Um, I'm Laura Grindstaff. I'm here from UC Davis. This question is for the last presenter. Um, I think I'm more encouraged by the new major option than by the other experiment because the one thing I kept thinking of, well, so we have these biology students who are concurrently then learning how to be teachers, but is this a kind of, I mean, what's the gender and or racial ethnic breakdown of those students who are, who are hailed by this combination of things? And are we siphoning future female and or people of color research scientists out of the pipeline and into teaching, which is kind of where we're already concentrated anyway. I mean, I under, so there, there's, there's a potential um, challenge, I think, around those of us who are concerned about getting more women and people of color in the STEM disciplines as research scientists, right, as career scientists. Um, this, is this program gonna siphon off or funnel out 
po the po very populations we're actually wanting to encourage to sort of go forward. Um, yeah, I think that's an excellent, uh, it's an excellent question, and it's also one that we, uh, uh, that we can study and intend to study. We want to, uh, given uh, uh, the, the uh, School of Education here, that's exactly the kinds of questions that we're going to be asking about where do these students, you know, where did they come from, where are they going, would, would they have ever considered alternative careers within research science, for instance? Uh, so we will be we'll be studying it. Now we don't know. All of this is very new. Uh, I'm Harry Green from UCR. Um, I do geophysics. My question is about the first talk uh, and how very successful you are at getting very large numbers of female uh, graduates and so on in biology, and yet your campus has the same basic ceiling that everybody else has you only have 25% of your faculty in biology female. And I'd just like to have you talk about that. So is that for me? I mean, the yeah. question is uh, how we have been able to recruit uh, minority graduate students? Is that? Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm dean of the school, so it's probably a better question, it's a better question for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, um, uh, of course, we're all familiar with the very long time lag that it takes for, you know, for to replace a, what's essentially a 40-year uh, demographic group of, uh, of faculty. What I can tell you is that, say, over the past five years, we've been hiring approximately in a 50-50 ratio of uh, females and, uh, and males, but it takes a very long time for that to dilute, for, for that gets diluted into the general uh, demography. Uh, we, do not, uh, we do not see any differential um, uh, gender uh, uh, discrimination and lack of tenure uh, of people that, that don't make it uh, to tenure. Um, we are just, uh, we're not seeing the applications, frankly. Uh, the, the application uh, rates for most of, our, uh, most of our jobs are hanging around 20 to 25 percent female. They're very successful when, when we bring them in and interview them, but we're not, there's that big, there's the big gap in biological sciences between the 50% that is coming out with, uh, with PhDs and postdocs uh, and then coming down to around 25%. Yes, this is building on um, uh, the question about who these young people are because here are, here are young people who, who are deciding they want to teach. Teaching is what they want to do. And they don't want to be biologists. I think that's something that we, we need to understand, not just for that, but for the way our culture thinks about science. You know, what is it about the teaching of it that is acceptable to do versus the being of it that is off-putting or uh, fearful? I don't know. But it's a really important researchable issue because then you can feed it back into the system at the K-6 level. Right. Yeah. Yes. No. Um, the, um, 
Biological sciences, I mean, it's, it's a very popular major. We've, we, uh, we have 20% of, uh, of the enrolled students on our campus and have had for decades. But it's also a highly competitive major. It's very difficult, and it involves proficiency in both mathematics and the physical sciences, particularly chemistry. And uh, the students, uh, students may know that and may just figure, I don't want to deal with that. And then I don't want to deal with uh, the competitive and very stressful atmosphere of applying to professional schools. Uh, and I, I can't say why. Uh, they um, you know, will, will find out whether we're dealing really with two different populations here of of science-interested people that want to be teachers and people that want to be scientists and they just want to be scientists. And that, got, that goes back to an earlier question. Do, are we really pulling people away from the research track into this? We may not be at all. We may just be adding uh, people that can enrich and improve the entire pipeline. Tesha Sengupta Irving, I'm an assistant professor in the School of Education here at UC Irvine, and myself and a colleague are actually familiar with the Calteach program, and I wanted to address the same question that was raised earlier about siphoning the pipeline. I'm a formal electrical engineer who went on to be a high school math teacher in Compton, and then I'm now someone who studies and tries to promote mathematics among girls and underrepresented minorities in K-12 schools so that we do see them in the pipeline that you're talking about. So I do want to think about how this isn't just about um, either or propositions for young people today, but in fact that we're just trying to make a more plural space for them. And so to think about how this is either siphoning them away from science and siphoning them into or away from teaching, I think is a slightly limited way to look at it, at least from my perspective. I also want to add that in terms of the teaching force, if you take Orange County, for example, over 80% of the people who teach in K-12 schools in Orange County are white women. Over 60% of the students are Latino. So the teaching force in our K-12 schools also don't mirror our children. So, And I recognize that in the social sciences, we aren't necessarily talking about education today. But for the few of us in the School of Education, I think these questions of the pipeline and representation are just as salient as they are in what you think of as the core kind of STEM fields and so on. So I just wanted to add that comment um, on behalf of the School of Ed for what that's worth. Um, well, my name is Diego Hoyle, and I am a, a, a first-year graduate student at, at UCI. My question was uh, about for, from uh, to the last presenter. Uh, so basically, um, this is not anything that I have any statistics, uh, but uh, I have talked to people in the past. Uh, um, as I've been in community college, and I have. Uh, in my at work, uh, I talk to younger people who are coming out of high school and they are interested in pursuing careers and so on. But uh, one of the uh, feedbacks that I get a lot, or the or the idea that I have sometimes, is that uh, a lot of people that come out of high school uh, are not very familiar with uh, the scientific method, and uh, sometimes I think this might not be just because they don't take science classes, but um, a lot of the classes they take in high school uh, might not be uh, so uh, focused uh, on uh, introducing the scientific method to, to pe younger people. And so uh, 
if they don't have this, uh, it's kind of in, in my personal experience, um, um, I, want, I, I wanted that I want, I knew I wanted to do science when I was younger because uh, uh, I, I mean every kid likes dinosaurs, right? <laughs> uh, but and, and I too. But uh, in my case, my my father uh, uh, gave me books about uh, dinosaurs uh, and where it explains about evolution and so on. And I, I kind of became interested in that. Uh, it was a different kind of interest, and and I asked, started to ask questions when I was were very young. So. Uh, I, I kind of like got introduction to the scientific method, and uh, I was interested in different type of research, not only biological. So, so I guess uh, I don't know how uh, does that affect uh, other students uh, in uh, from uh, high school or elementary high school, and, and and what is being done about that. Well, I think it gets back to the to that question about uh, not exactly what's being taught, but how it's being taught. Uh, and uh, that uh, somebody who, you know, somebody who has been through uh, an undergraduate program within science thinks with the scientific method and would have all kinds of ways of personalizing it and teaching it that somebody that's simply going through the list of variables and asking, asking the students to fill in the boxes to what comes next. You have to have... Uh, you have to have this whole store of different examples in your mind in order to personalize it for for the students. And I think that gets back to the special credential to the, the these people aren't scientists, they weren't trained as scientists that are teaching the students. Okay, let's thank our uh, panel for a very, very interesting... Uh, clearly it was a very well-oiled panel and it's also reflected and how effective they've been in their uh, division. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.